Welcome to the High Performer Webinar Series provided by TMIT Global, a nonprofit medical research organization. I'm Dr. Charles Denham, Chairman and Founder of TMIT Global, and I'll be your host today. For those of you who are watching the program live, watching the video recording, or listening to the podcast, you may go to www.safetyleaders.org to download the slides and the resources. Our topic today is preventable death and severe injury on and off the campus threats. The following video stories will help us focus our thoughts. The following video stories will help us focus our attention. Anyone one where's your emergency? Hey, I need to get a... Hello? Hello? He was sort of into everything. First in line, first to show everybody what to do, how to do it. You need to get an ambulance. What's going on? Uh, we got a guy who's passed out. He drank way too much. We found him this morning. It never occurred to me that he wouldn't be able to handle situation or go out there and be on top of his game like he was in any other situation. Um, I have to say, I had absolutely no... I really didn't have any worries. I don't think parents are aware of what their kids are being asked to navigate, particularly when they go to college. How much did you guys drink? Uh, 23 shots. 23. How did we as adults, where is it that we didn't say, if your friend is unconscious, you need to call 911? The problem is people wait too long. They bring them in and they're totally unresponsive. They've already blocked their airway. They've already had a period of time with not enough oxygen. And it can be limited in terms of how much we're going to be able to reverse damage that's already been done. Hazing is a process based on a tradition used by groups to maintain a pecking order or for discipline. If these people are willing to put you through that kind of torment, are these really the people you want as your friends? And I say to them, you know, well, did you have a group of friends at home? Well, sure. Did that group of friends haze you? You know, uh, well, no. So, well, that's because that's not normal. <laughs> you know? This is a 600-year-old problem. It's not going away overnight. So what can we keep doing differently now to keep trying to get the message out? You don't understand the feeling, I guess, until you wake up and know that you had six hours to call 911 and you were too ignorant, too scared, too whatever, to, to make that call. The bottom line message is, if you see a friend who's impaired and you think may be in danger, call for help. Gordy would be with us today if somebody had called for help. We have a number of world-class speakers and reactors today who we will introduce individually. However, for many years, we've given the first and last word to the voice of the patient, to those we serve. Jennifer Dingman is a national patient safety advocate, a published author, a contributor to federal and public healthcare programs, such as the National Quality Form Safe Practices, and a winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. She and a team of advocates have met every other Saturday for many years to pursue high impact projects. According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the team's work led to the passage of the Hospital Acquired Conditions Program, better known as HACS. This program saved hundreds of thousands of lives and billions of dollars. 
Thank you, Jenny, for starting us off with the voice of the patient. Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Denham. Today's program is very important to me, talking about preventable deaths. We can all participate in our health and our well-being and do everything that we can to prevent something terrible from happening. Really looking forward to hearing our speakers and thank you so much, everyone who is here today. I encourage you to share the recording with your friends, neighbors, and colleagues. I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Our social media addresses are now on the screen, and for our podcast listeners, you may find them on the slides on our website. For those of you who are new to our program, we always briefly address our purpose, mission, and core values. Our purpose is to measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, families of patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and the ventures we undertake. And we try to live our I care values, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. Our MedTech Global Bystander Rescue Care initiatives are communities of practice such as the Emerging Threats Community of Practice and Care University, our learning management system that issues continuing education certificates are all grounded and run on these principles. A brief word on disclosures, which we address on a slide. None of our speakers have anything to disclose. The TMIT Global Webinar Series has been entirely funded by private family philanthropy. No direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support has ever been or ever will be provided by healthcare pharmaceutical or device companies. Again, for those of you who are new to us, the TMIT Global Research Testbed is a network that has grown over 39 years. It consists of leaders from more than 3,100 hospitals in 3,000 communities and more than 500 subject matter experts. The experts come from clinical, operational, financial, and engineering disciplines. Their common cause has been performance improvement. When the coronavirus crisis struck, we formed an original team of 60 subject matter experts to build a community of practice. This grew to over 150 experts who have helped families of essential workers who had to keep working through the crisis. Their contributions as speakers and reactors were both live and recorded. Some of their messages came for our first two Discovery Channel documentaries, Chasing Zero and Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami, and our current Three Minutes and Counting series, Tackling Failure to Rescue Through Bystander Care. The results of our study of more than 1,000 family households led to the development of more than 32 Survive and Thrive 90-minute live broadcasts, recorded programs and podcasts, print articles, and public health assets. Although they were developed for critical essential workers, we hit a nerve with the general public who embraced the messages. The programs range from coming home safe to the pillars of prevention, emergency care, what to do if a loved one is in the ICU, and then we tied our education to the ever-changing guidelines, evolution of the variants, and development of vaccines. Our alumni and alumna are from many leading universities. They helped shape our R&D during COVID and are now helping us tackle failure to rescue and bystander care for the most common emergencies. This program 
is uh, one that we're very uh, pleased to be bringing to you. We have a number of speakers today. Uh, we have uh, Randy Steiner on the gallery photo that you see uh, there before you, who is the emergency uh, response director for the University of California, Irvine. We have Nanette Hausman, who launched College 911, which is a program to save the lives of our college students as they transition from high school to college. We have Nicole Hughes, who lost her four-year-old uh, to drowning, who's been also a, a great contributor nationally and worked with the uh, uh, pediatrics organizations to help bring awareness to these issues. We have Chief, uh, Chief uh, Bill Adcox, uh, a wonderful pathfinder for in the area of uh, threat safety science, who will be responding today, uh, and who is the Chief Security Officer and Vice President at the uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center at the University of Texas and the Chief of Police there at the University, responsible for tens of thousands of folks and their safety in Houston, Texas. We have uh, Chief, uh, we have, along with Chief Adcox, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Greg Boats, who's currently in the ICU today, who recorded yesterday his uh, message regarding this uh, critical issue. Uh, we also have uh, Charlie Denham, who is uh, my son, who's uh, focused on water safety uh, and will be uh, interviewing on our extended version. Uh, he'll be interviewing Nicole uh, Hughes regarding water safety today. So we're very delighted to have this group. I recently had the opportunity of hearing a tremendous motivational speaker who was a world champion surfer. My son is a competitive surfer, uh, and I had the opportunity at an event to hear uh, Sean Thompson not only tell his story of inspiration to our young people, but also the tragic loss uh, of, his, of his son. And again, today we're talking about preventable deaths of those that we that serve and those we serve uh, and making the case for us at uh, top medical centers and top institutions institutions of higher learning to focus on all of those preventable deaths and uh, peer group pressure is one that uh, uh, generates an enormous uh, uh, amount of uh, difficulty and crisis. Um, Sean Thompson has gone on two business degrees, speaks to world leaders uh, and leading organizations. Uh, I rec highly recommend both of his books. Uh, and uh, especially on Audible. And I've just taken a short clip of the loss of his son because he tees up uh, how many children and the impact on families that we have uh, when we lose uh, someone to preventable death. Powerless and Empowered, The Surfer. A study by Professor Rolf Keeney at Duke University concluded that 20,000 of the 35,000 people in the 15 to 24-year-old age group who die every year in the U.S. die from poor decisions. Kids die from motor vehicle accidents, illegal drugs, homicide and suicide. But these deaths do not just happen involuntarily. Young people put themselves into these situations. Dying young or not dying is not accidental. It is a matter of choice. 20,000 deaths results in an awful army of broken hearts. 40,000 parents, 80,000 grandparents, hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, friends. Over a short period of a few years, millions are affected with a terrible sadness of loss caused by one bad decision, one 
poor choice. I know from personal experience of the terrible grief associated with the death of a child. In 2006, our beautiful boy Matthew made a rash decision, a terrible mistake that cost him his life at only 15. Kids at his school wore ties as part of their school uniforms, and after school one day he tried something called the choking game and killed him. One bad decision made on the spur of the moment, and my boy was gone. And my life and my wife's life were destroyed. The pain of losing a child is beyond awful, indescribably dreadful, an unending sadness that stretches out endlessly with no horizon, no end point, an agonizing journey on a ship sailing to the dismal port of hopelessness and despair. When I thought of our loss and I think of the other 40,000 parents who are faced with that same hard and painful journey, I knew that I had to do something. What to do? How can one person help or influence a generation far removed from where I am now in my life? A number of years after my loss, I started to tell my story to community groups, corporations, schools, and universities. I speak about my journey from the dark back into the light, about finding hope amidst despair. I talk about how two hours before my son died, he read me a beautiful essay that eloquently described the surfing experience and how some of the words he wrote have become a mantra for me. The light shines ahead, so powerful and so full of hope. I think speaking about my loss helped me as much as I hoped it would help others. I speak to young people about the awesome responsibility they have to make positive choices, to not react instinctively and just be a little bit more contemplative. Above all, I stress to young people across the country and across the world, a day will come when you are faced with a life and death decision. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but that day will come. You might be by yourself, or you might be with friends, or you might be with people who you think are your friends, but who are not really who you think they are. Your parents will not be there, and ultimately, it will be you and the decision, you and the choice, you and life, you and death. I used to be a pro surfer, so by the time I get to this part of the talk, I've shown some video of huge waves and exciting wipeouts, and I usually have the audience's attention. I say, try to remember that a surfer guy once came to visit you and told you about his son's one bad decision and the pain he had to endure that broke his life, and how easy it is for you to bring the same pain to the people you love. I say, please, do this one thing, one thing only, and I ask the kids to repeat it. Think twice. What are you going to do? Think twice. Kids would listen to my story and my impassioned plea to think twice, but there's no call to action, just a call for a reaction to a potentially deadly situation. When there is danger, think twice. So this video, this uh, audio recording is from the audio book, who we, uh, which we highly, highly recommend. Uh, the next video is uh, of uh, Nicole or uh, Nanette Hausman, uh, who has championed the cause for uh, preventing the uh, accidental deaths and actually good healthcare in our universities. Good morning, all. Um, our story. Two and a half years ago, our family of five traveled 
to drop our youngest son, Corey, off to college for what was supposed to be, as some people say, the best four years of one's life. The drop off went well. He took to it like a fish to water. Probably couldn't wait for his parents to leave. And we did. After we left, I immediately was so looking forward to going back for Parents Weekend. We had our reservation, wanted to hear the stories of this new exciting chapter. Unfortunately, Parents Weekend never came for us. We did go back to school, however, 15 days after that drop-off to pick up an urn filled with his ashes. You see, Corey passed away as a result of a preventable accident. Little did we know that accidents are the leading cause of student deaths at college. This was the third week of the first semester. When we got there, we were told his, Corey's death, was actually the third death of the semester. Think about that for a second. Three weeks into a semester, three young adults died, three devastating, tragic stories, three devastated families. Our children are so, so precious. I want you to think about us uh, when you're listening to the testimony of 11 people that have stepped forward to testify on our behalf. They aren't just people that feel sad for us. They're people that are experts in different subject matters. I have uh, parents, some whose children are still alive. I have parents whose sons have died away, whether we're at college, that have started college safety advocate groups. I have some of Corey's friends that have dug in to help us understand how this could have happened and make change. I love hearing about how we're worrying about feeding children. I think that's great in every aspect of supporting children at college, but I think one of the primary things needs to do is to make sure that they are safe and they stay alive. So these are powerful stories and how do we tie these stories together? We will in just a moment with the data. Uh, Nanette Hausman is pursuing not only uh, a bill that went through in Connecticut, but also one that has gone through, uh, that is going through a federal bill that would add injuries and death of our college students to what naturally needs to be reported. And the final video I'll show before we kick things off here is uh, Nicole Hughes uh, regarding her son, Levi. Happy birthday to you. My son, Levi, was so proud to turn three, but he will never get the chance to turn four. I'm Nicole Hughes, Levi's mom. And while on a family vacation, his childhood was snatched away when I turned to close a bag of chips. He was sitting on the couch surrounded by friends and I split a brownie with him. And then somehow he slipped out the back door unnoticed down a flight of stairs and fell into the pool. When I jumped in to grab my son, the other half of the brownie was still in my mouth. I never thought my child would drown, but I was wrong. Drowning is the single leading cause of death for children ages one to four. It is silent and fast, and it can happen even when you aren't swimming. Drowning is preventable. Please talk with your pediatrician about how you can keep your child safe.
So the, these videos uh, are addressing a number of deaths that aren't happening on campus. There's another on our extended version that you'll be able to watch regarding Bodie Miller's daughter, Emmy, who uh, also died at age three. So the questions that we really are, the issues that we want to address today, uh, and I'm going to uh, just test my sharing here just to make sure that I'm sharing uh, the, the proper, uh, the proper uh, screen. Uh, is the, this issue of preventable death and severe injury. What are the problems and solutions? Well, there are preventable deaths and injuries that are clearly occurring and growing. There are solutions uh, in the, in, at the intersection of leadership practices and technologies. One of the, one of the questions is, uh, uh, or one of the three whys is, why act, why you, and why now? And the first issue is that the public safety and the public health net is failing uh, through a whole number of issues. We know that uh, the police departments uh, have received less funding. There are enorm enormous gaps in their recruitment uh, and, and, and staffing. And we know through the COVID crisis that our public health system has not only failed us, but also is in tatters. We know that, that, that we can act in areas of what we call the four Ps, prevention, preparedness, protection, performance, improvement. So why you, why our medical centers and our educators at, and our uh, ed, uh, institutions of higher learning? Because it can have an enormous impact. We're actually in the business of educating and caring for others. Um, and why not not only serve those who work for you, but also their families and extend beyond our public health work in these organizations, if we're experts at, at training and teaching and we're experts in information, why not expand that to the families who serve, but also the families we serve? That's really a sweet spot. And then the third why, why now? Um, when you look at the data, it's really frightening. Tell us how long you want to wait and we'll show you how many lives will be lost. Or if you want to tell us how many lives you're willing to lose, tell us how long to wait will either be counting saves or graves. This is an expression that we're using. So one of the things that we're exploring in our community of practice right now is uh, this issue uh, of um, this issue of should we step up and care for the families? Uh, right now, <clears throat> many organizations are caring for their caregivers and caring for the patients they care for. But what about extending it to the most vulnerable and in the communities if we're experts? Um, the families who serve and the families they serve, seniors, our children. And this is why we've shown some of these videos. Now, uh, I'm going to skip through a number of our initial slides that we do because we've got some great speakers today. You can, you can see uh, us on social media. Our purpose is to measure our success by how we impact the lives of families and caregivers. Our, our values are integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. None of us have anything to disclose, nor do we have uh, received any funding from industry. And so we'll go through some of those slides that you can look a little bit more detail and watch some of our videos to learn if you're with us for the first time about our 3,100 hospitals that we serve in 3,000 communities and our 500 uh, subject matter experts. And also the work that we've done in COVID over the last 30 to 32 months with a growing set of experts, and you can go on our website to be able to see those. I think what's really pertinent is that we've had a, 
1,000 worker study that we launched in 2020, and we studied 1,000 households and continuously pulled those that attended our webinars and outreach through a number of organizations uh, to identify how uh, families can respond to a crisis. And now we're extending that through this emerging threats collaborative that we're working on. Um, we've produced uh, over 90, 90 or 60, 90 minute programs, uh, 30 survive and thrive guides, and you can go to our website to see them. But again, we really wanna tackle the issue today. And so we'll skip through that. However, we'd like to make sure to let you know that we have a number of students that are working with us from leading organizations, from leading colleges who are really dedicated dedicated to, to public health and dedicated to outreach and help others. And so this young adult team will be working in this area of what we call emerging threats. So this webinar is focused on emerging threats. It's our community of practice. Um, and our focus is really on inside threats, outside threats, and creating uh, an improved or an enlarged uh, safety zone, a high performance safety zone. We know that with these inside and outside threats, that the COVID uh, issues have really uh, stressed the, the system. And that's what I alluded to earlier regarding our public safety net, but also our public health safety net. So those that are our first responders, law enforcement, emergency medicine, EMS, fire, they're all stretched beyond, uh, beyond words, but also our public health safety net that we all count on have had many, many departures of leaders because of the polarization that's happened. So we've been focusing on uh, what we call the 30 emerging threats that are keeping our leaders up at night. And you can see these on our website uh, and go to uh, globalpatientsafetyforum.org to see them and see all 30 of them. And you can watch a video there that really explains how we're focused on all 30 of these. And our model is really to build these communities of practice. You see that on the left, build our communities of practice, develop course R&D, and that's what we did through our thousand hospital or a thousand household study, develop competency testing. And, and Dr. Boats, who you'll hear from in, in a few minutes, will share with you uh, 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 some thoughts about deliberative practice and why skills are as important as knowledge and that they are a perishable, perishable resource. And then we put together, together certification programs. Many of you uh, get your continuing medical education and continuing uh, nursing uh, education units uh, with us. We also collaborate with a number of the national organizations through our MedTAC program, which is focused on bystand, bystander care. So what I'm showing you right now, and those of you that on the podcast, uh, I'm just depicting the 60 threat areas that we are focused on in one slide, and we hope you get a chance to download them. And we also want to offer uh, any one of you to join us and join our community of practice if you wish to be able to learn more and, and, and focus on these areas. So in 2015, we started a program called MedTAC. It's the merger of medical best practices and tactical practices of the best first responders, focused on eight leading causes of preventable death that good Samaritans can help uh, and where lives can be saved before EMS arrives. 
uh, cardiac arrest, choking and drowning, opioid overdose, anaphylaxis, major trauma, infections, transportation, drive-over accidents, and bullying. And it's pretty interesting that as we wrote the articles, uh, you, those of you that are on the podcast, we've written six articles you can download in Campus Safety Magazine. We have four more coming to focus on this area called failure to rescue, the, these challenges, and what bystanders can do to be able to tackle this failure to rescue issue. And as we do that, uh, you know, and as we were focused on that, we realized that these preventable death and severe injury areas we're covering today uh, are, are critical. So let's dig into the data and then let's hear from Doc, uh, Chief Adcox and, uh, and from Dr. Boats and from, uh, and from Randy Steiner, the uh, Director of Emergency Response. If we look at preventable death and injury, this is a really big area. Now, I'm showing you a very busy slide for those of you that are on the podcast, of, uh, and it, it, it is a big graphic that shows the percentage of deaths by age from under one year of age to over 85. The first one that I'll show you and that I'm showing the audience that can see it on the broadcast actually show the top five and you can see the top five causes of death. And then you can see some of them drop down as we age. And then we also show the total number of deaths uh, in the size of circles and then uh, total suicides. These are 2016. Now, what's really frightening, if we compare that then to 2020 data, and this is data from the CDC that has been uh, graphically portrayed in 2016 by the National uh, Safety Council, uh, we've rebuilt or built the graphic. They decided not to build the graphic, and we built it for comparison. And so when you look at uh, 2016, uh, and you look uh, at, 20, uh, at 2020, uh, there's an enormous jump in two or three areas. One of them is drowning in ages one to four, and the other is an enormous jump in poisoning where opioid overdoses live. Uh, and so as I toggle back and forth between these slides, we see a tremendous uh, change in 2016 to, 20, uh, in, to uh, 2020. Now, as we look at the top five, we can see that that mechanical suffocation uh, is and what happens in under the one year of age group is not an area where we're really focused today. But when we look at the top five uh, causes of unintentional deaths, uh, they jump off of the page that motor vehicle accidents are huge. Those that are outside the top five that show up in other categories as, as we age are depicted um, in a second uh, build of this particular slide. So for those, those of you in the podcast, what we've been able to do is be able to look um, uh, over time how the causes of death change. And we see an enormous number of the deaths occur actually in the prime of life, not as, not as one would expect at the upper ages, but actually in the middle ages, there's an enormous uh, growth there and also with suicides. Now, when we break these down and we look at these in 2020, uh, as I said, we have an enormous uh, uh, jump uh, in the middle age uh, area of opioid overdoses and poisonings. And we see 
a, a growth in the number of uh, people that are passing away at younger ages. And this is why our life expectancy has, uh, has dramatically changed. Now, we're going to be covering these in deeper depth. But now, uh, as we, for those of you in the podcast, I'm breaking the slides down just so that they're easier to see. And we see mechanical suffocation is just in that first year of life. But what really is amazing are the number of uh, motor vehicle accidents in those from five to 24 years of uh, age. And the fact that 28% of these motor vehicle accident deaths are alcohol related and 16% are now related uh, to opioids and, uh, and drugs. When we look at choking, younger ages and older ages, not a big surprise. Uh, with what we've uh, what we've been learning, but drowning is uh, enormous uh, enormous problem in the one to four age group. That's why we showed the videotapes that we uh, that we showed early on to kind of capture our attention. Forty two percent of the drowning deaths occur in one to four years of age. However, in the five to 14, 15 percent and many of the drownings in the older age groups are related to alcohol consumption uh, with our uh, with our college and high school uh, age group. If we look at uh, if we look at fires, flames and smoke, one thing to be and we'll ask Chief Adcox to comment on this is, is that um, our first responders many in many communities used to be our law enforcement and because they're so, so short staffed and because of the political issues that have happened and polarization and fear of uh, retribution uh, many many in the communities the first responders are fire uh, or ems and they are stretched especially with the fires that are occurring and cardiac arrest is a is a critical issue Finally, when we look at the oldest age group, 65 to 85 years of age, one in three Americans are caring for someone in their home. Very few of this, more than 90 million Americans today, more than 90 million Americans uh, today are caring for someone in their home and receive very, very little instruction on how to prevent falls. And falls are the leading cause of death in the over 65 age group um, if, uh, if of unintentional death and these are not the natural deaths now when we look at opioid and poisoning this is the one that really we and we covered we're not going to cover opioid uh issues uh, to a great degree today because we've covered them in the last two webinars and we've got films that we'll share with you uh that you'll be able to watch however 293 opioid deaths every day Alcohol poisoning rose 26% in 2020, which uh, is shocking. And that's why we've shared uh, that information with you. And uh, many people are surprised to know that the, there are people 25 to 64 that actually uh, are dying of opioid overdoses. I had my pastor recently share, one of my pastors shared with me that he had a call from a friend of his whose wife in older age group died of, uh, died of opioid uh, 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 overdose from uh, a counterfeit pill, which we've covered extensively in our prior programs. So this is just a huge problem. And one of our challenges is, are we only gonna care for those that, that, that work in our medical centers and higher education, or are we going to reach out to those two to three people per family unit and really try to uh, be a source of public health impact and also with the alcohol issues. Uh, medical amnesty is uh, depicted on the slide. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, this is an initiative that helps minors understand that they that they won't have 
uh, won't be at risk if they call for help. The Gordy story uh, that you heard er at, at the outset was regarding a young man where in many, many uh, uh, young people, minors and those in college are afraid to call 911 to fear, for, for fearing for themselves. And the Medical Amnesty Initiative uh, focuses on uh, the states that, that will uh, give those uh, young people a, a pass. The don't uh, the uh, don't stall just call program uh, is uh, is another uh, program that was started by a mother who lost uh, her son uh, to alcohol poisoning and addresses uh, the signs and symptoms that you need to recognize for alcohol uh, poisoning. We know in our campuses a critical issue: uh, stumbling, mumbling, unresponsive, cool to touch, vomiting. These are all programs that have started uh, have been started by parents. Uh, who've lost someone who want to give meaning and life to it. Uh, for those in the uh, in the podcast we shared, you listened to, and, and those that watched the video, the online video, will see the trailer for the movie Haze, which is the Gordy uh, story. Uh, and this is the uh, about the young man that passed away in his first few weeks uh, in uh, in college. And and good programs like and this is another one uh, called with uh, the uh, with uh, uh, mnemonic uh, pubs. Puking uh, when when passed out, uh, unresponsive uh, breathing that's irregular, slow, shallow, or stopped, skin that is blue. These are all tools that uh, that we can use. So as we look at the preventable and accidental deaths, and then intentional deaths and suicide, we also see a, a growth in that. And the NSC injury statistics. Uh, 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 show us that the impact of many of these uh, things that have happened during the COVID uh, crisis and the cost to employers is enormous. So we really want to make the case that uh, this could be uh, a very, very important uh, for us. Uh, and uh, I, I want to turn things over to Bill uh, Adcox and have him respond to seeing this data before we move on to, to uh, uh, Dr. Boats and uh, listen to uh, what Randy Steiner has to say. Bill, uh, you're, you're a leader at one of our, le our leading cancer center, but also one of our leading universities. Um, uh, is there a good opportunity for us to use that great talent you all have at great centers for understanding data and science, but also teaching and caring for these conditions to, to, to kind of expand the way we did with our MedTech program to the families and not just those that serve? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham, and very pleased to be with you today. Um, you're absolutely correct. Um, bystander care, which is the model behind uh, MedTech, uh, is very critical, and extending it to the family is probably the most um, powerful thing we can do. As you know, for example, just in policing alone, we just completed a survey through the Police Executive Research Forum, and 50% of the agencies today have less police officers than they did you know, five years ago. 50% of the agencies today uh, have, uh, over 50% have seen an increase in retirements, and over 50% have seen an increase in resignations. And in nearly three quarters or more of the agencies are seeing quite difficult, quite difficulty and even in recruiting. So you're, you're seeing that in that five years, you're, you're seeing less, less uh, police in terms of the emergency safety net for everybody. At the same time, you've seen a tremendous increase, not only in crime, obviously, but also in, in, in these death statistics, uh, these death 
uh, statistics involving, you know, opiate overdoses, fentanyl, and so forth. And it's very, very critical that we understand that there's ways that we all, every one of us, can save lives. And there are seven or eight preventable uh, types of uh, preventable deaths that we can all save. And truly, uh, it's it goes beyond a, a major hospital or a major hospital uh, complex. It goes into everybody's communities. But more importantly, we need to start in the family. We need to go to the family. We need to teach our family, our, 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 our children, um, how to do this, whether it's CPR, you know, whether it's the entire med tech program, whether it's CPR, it's stop the bleed, it's how to, to use an AED, how to administer, you know, uh, uh, an EpiPen in a crisis of, of anaphylactic shock, whatever it might be. We can teach these things to our family. We can protect our families first and foremost, and then we can spread it out to friends, and then we can spread it out to our community. So I, I will tell you that what you're saying is exactly true. Bystander uh, care is important, and we all need to be engaged and involved. Well, Bill, isn't it shocking how many deaths there truly are? We focus so much on active shooter events, which we've covered extensively, and you are working so hard on insider threats and so many different things. But it really is amazing how, how many deaths are occurring in our families for which there's not much of a safety net. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Active shooter events are just horrific. They get all the national publicity and press. It involves our, our, our most vulnerable in our population, our children, and it's, it's horrible. Um, but when we look at the numbers, strictly at the data and, and remove, remove all that, we can save more lives uh, by numbers, strictly numbers, by being involved in MedTech, by being involved in teaching our families these different methodologies of, of what to look for and, and what to do and how to save a life. We can also do that during an active shooter event. We can do it during that. We can teach, uh, if we already taught our children at home and, 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 and God forbid if something happens in, in, in a school or in a mall or something, we can provide that stop the bleed. We can provide that, that CPR. We can do those things that are necessary to save lives. So I, I, I agree with you. The, the numbers are, 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 are very high, mostly uh, you know, outside of active shooter deaths. Uh, but we can't forget active shooters. That, that's very critical. We need to make sure that we do everything we can to protect our children in our schools. But beyond that, the most important thing that any of us can do is, is teach our families how to save a life. Well, Bill, it's such a joy to work with you and Dr. Boats, whose slide, for those of you that are on the, uh, on the podcast, Dr. Boats is, uh, works very closely with uh, Chief Adcox. He's the chief medical officer, actually, for the police department, uh, for which uh, Chief Adcox is the chief. Uh, and Dr. Boats is a professor of uh, anesthesiology and critical care at the, U at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's also a full clinical professor and adjunct position with the Stanford University Medical School. We're gonna hear from Dr. Boats, who is in ICU today, uh, who will also react to this data. So Dr. Boats, what's your initial reaction to uh, the data regarding preventable injuries and deaths? Well, I think the data are very compelling. Uh, even though the data that we see is as much as 10 years old, it still reflects what's going on in our communities. Even the updated data showing the risks for preventable death in all of our age groups is astounding. 
there's so much that we can do to recognize it and mitigate it so that the impact of these events uh, is lessened in our communities and especially in our families. So what should families know and what should uh, leaders of organizations and families and parents know about opioids and opioid uh, overdoses? Well, I think that uh, recently opioids have become probably the most um, prevalent risk to our young adults and now increasingly uh, in our high school students and even as young as our middle school students. Uh, the availability and use of opiates, whether it's intentional or unintentional, is having devastating effects on our kids. Uh, opiate overdoses are uh, increasing every year uh, the availability and the uh, potency of these opiates are increasing and uh, we're seeing devastating results in either uh, known or unknown exposure to these drugs that are causing drastic consequences, including death. Most of us don't know very much about alcohol poisoning. Uh, can you tell us what we need to know about that? Well, alcohol poisoning is a term that is used to describe uh, some of the adverse physiologic effects of alcohol on the body. It's one of a uh, constellation of problems that are included in the alcohol-related injuries. It really describes the effect of alcohol on the body. And the most important factor in alcohol poisoning is the ability to recognize the signs and symptoms and intervene before any serious injury occurs. Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. It alters the brain function. And so looking for signs and symptoms of brain dysfunction is really key to identifying people who have ingested alcohol to the point where they are having significant impairment. Um, so slurred speech, inability to maintain attention, inability to do normal tasks, anything that you may see that uh, describes a person as not being in their normal sense can all be signs of alcohol ingestion and potentially alcohol toxicity. So you and I've had the conversation about uh, these unique new products that are derivatives from marijuana that can um, can be misinterpreted by caregivers and uh, and uh, tell us about that toxicity and what we need to know about that. Well, certainly since the legalization of marijuana products or THC containing products in various states across the United States, um, we've seen a progression of toxicity from ingestion or from the inhalation of THC. Um, they come in a variety of products. Now, when I was in high school, it was predominantly marijuana that people smoked. The THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana that causes the high, was a relatively low concentration. Uh, there has been a significant investment by the commercial marijuana industry to both increase the content of THC in the available marijuana and to provide a way of 
infusing various products with THC for consumption, like edibles. Now, the problem is that the toxicity studies that were done with marijuana looked at marijuana in a relatively low concentration, say up to 4% THC. But we're seeing that the commercially available marijuana may be as much as 20-30% THC now, and some of the derivative products where the THC is eluted or dissolved out of the uh, marijuana plant and concentrated can be as high as the 90 to 95% concentration. The toxicity association associated with ingestion of such high levels of THC is not well studied, but I would offer that many emergency medicine providers, emergency room staff, many people that work in the pre-hospital arena like paramedics and EMTs are seeing significant consequences from THC toxicity in the patients they encounter. Many, many hospitalizations, many, many ER visits are related to the consequences of ingesting high concentrations of THC. So Dr. Boats, in our MedTech program, we've incorporated the recovery position or rescue position uh, into uh, that training and subsequently just people that we, teachers that we taught to teach it actually saved lives within days of learning it. Can you describe why it's so important for all of us to learn about that skill? Certainly the rescue position or the recovery position is a helpful adjunct to the management of someone who has altered mental status, whether it's from an ingestion or an injury um, or otherwise. And uh, certainly someone who has altered uh, mental status, altered consciousness, is likely to have an aspiration event where gastric contents come up into the into the mouth and they're inhaled into the lungs if the person's lying on their back. It's very common in uh, pre-hospital care to see people who have aspirated because of either alcohol ingestion or drug ingestion and lose their ability to protect their airway. The rescue position is just a technique that allows you to turn the patient on their side safely so that if they do vomit, or regurgitate gastric fluid into their mouth, rather than going down into their uh, trachea or windpipe and down into their lungs, it runs out of their mouth onto the ground. That simple intervention can be life-saving in people with uh, altered mental status from whatever cause. When we talk about drowning, you've been very helpful in helping me understand why someone who has been rescued by CPR and use of an AED, and they say they're okay, why you need to take them to the hospital. And can you help us clarify the term dry drowning and why it's not used anymore? Sure. Uh, I think the folklore in discussing dry drowning has just helped to conceptualize what the problem is in near drowning events. Most people would imagine that someone who drowns uh, inhales or ingests large amount of water, either fresh water or salt water, depending on what environment they're in. But in fact, very few people actually inhale significant amounts of fluid when they have a drowning event. 
a drowning event is really a low oxygen level associated with the inability to breathe. And so their efforts to try to, um, to take a breath when they can't, or the consequences of the resuscitation from a near drowning event often leads uh, to a lung injury. And uh, we see people who have very significant respiratory efforts against a closed airway uh, develop pulmonary edema or extra fluid in the lung tissue that impairs oxygenation. Um, there are other consequences of a near drowning event that can lead uh, to lung injuries that we uh, sort of lump into the category of dry drowning because dry drowning really implies that your injury or your consequence of a near drowning event is related to um, an abnormality in the lung function rather than fluid getting into the lungs and preventing oxygen exchange. Is it fair to say that if I was to describe it to my 16 year old, that when a near drowning occurs, the, there's a flap that closes and when you're trying to pull air into the lungs, it pulls water in between the surface where air exchange or oxygen and carbon dioxide can exchange in the blood. There's a thickening. Is that what that thick, that pulmonary edema is? You know, that's a really great description that meets the visual or mental image for a non-healthcare provider. Um, we use big words like non-cardiac pulmonary edema, but that really doesn't help the average person understand what's going on, but you're absolutely right. When you try to take a deep breath against a closed airway or when your vocal cords are closed to protect your lungs, but nonetheless, you have a very uh, vigorous inspiratory effort, that high negative pressure that's generated in the chest can move fluid into the space where gas exchange normally takes place. And that impairs the oxygen from moving from the lungs into the bloodstream. And so low oxygen levels are the consequences. Dr. Boats, we know that Narcan reverses opioid overdose really fast. Why should somebody who gets, gets recovered or rescued with Narcan, why should they go in the ambulance to the emergency department or be seen by caregivers? Well, Narcan is a reversal agent for opiates. It works by displacing the opiate from the receptor in the brain that um, is responsible for respiratory depression or slowed or absent breathing. Opiates kill people by stopping their breathing. The Narcan displaces the opiate from that receptor and normal breathing function should ensue. The problem is that some of the opiates are longer acting than the Narcan. And so even though someone has a pretty rapid reversal where they start breathing again, or they may wake up, that Narcan effect may go away before the opiate itself goes away and the respiratory depression and altered mental status can recur. And so we always recommend that someone who is treated with Narcan for an opiate overdose is seen in an emergency department or uh, at least seen by emergency medical personnel to be able to retreat with Narcan or manage the need for Narcan until the opiate is allowed to be eliminated from the body. Dr. Boats, we hear about fentanyl strips, but most of us don't know what they are. What are they? 
Fentanyl strips are a great tool. Um, fentanyl strips um, allow you to test a substance and detect fentanyl. So if uh, someone is inadvertently exposed to fentanyl, they don't know that it's in the product that they're drinking or ingesting. Um, that can have dire consequences. Fentanyl is a very, very rapid acting opiate that causes very significant uh, respiratory depression. It stops breathing. Um, whether that substance is used surreptitiously or uh, unknowingly um, is a danger. It's a threat to, uh, to people. And so fentanyl strips are uh, a way to chemically detect fentanyl in some substance and maybe prevent its ingestion. If you aren't sure whether fentanyl is in something that you're about to ingest, maybe testing it first would give you an indication that there's fentanyl present. Dr. Boats, we've made the case in prior programs that our public safety net is tattered and frayed with big gaps uh, through the whole COVID crisis. And we also uh, believe that the public health system is pretty tattered and frayed by many leaders leaving it. And uh, it's been pretty well decimated and pretty well underfunded even before COVID hit. Is it reasonable for us to discuss with top educational institutions and medical centers that they could help in the public health arena through the families they serve and the families that serve, since we know that families are a powerful unit for change? Well, absolutely. Both uh, educational organizations and healthcare organizations need to realize that they are made up of people that deliver their product, whether it's education or healthcare or both. And the, the basic unit from which those um, people come from is a family. And so their effectiveness in the educational system or in the healthcare system is directly related to the health and well-being of their family outside of the workplace. And so investing time in the wellness of that family unit uh, will allow their employees, their team members, to be that much more effective at delivering their product, education or healthcare or both, because there won't be the distraction of dysfunction in their family unit. Dr. Boats, have you been surprised by how everyone from the third graders when, to, to seniors can learn the med tech skills, how fast and how well they learn them? I've been surprised. Well, I really haven't been surprised, but I've been really happy to see that our thoughts about uh, teaching bystanders how to do relatively simple interventions to save lives in the gap between injury and arrival of professional first responders. We know that these skills are relatively easy to teach and relatively easy to perform. It's just really gratifying to see that with a little investment in time and effort, we see people from third grade up through adult being able to do these things with relative ease. And that's going to have significant impact in preventing death in that gap. Now that might, the last question might've been self-congratulatory. The negative part is the perishable nature of the skills we've seen in the Stop the Bleed programs and so many that these are skills that perish much faster than let's say the two year cycle for 
maybe some other first aid training. And so we've also been surprised at why it's so important to do what you say, deliberative practice. Can you talk about the perishable nature of the skills and the value of deliberative practice? Absolutely. You know, um, humans learn in different ways. And some of the things that we learn um, really make an impact on our life and we remember them and we can do them uh, uh, reliably, but most of the things that we learn aren't such. And so just think about when you first learned to ride a bike or drive a car, all of your attention was spent on trying to do that task at the expense of everything around you. And if you don't continue to practice, those skills perish, they go away. Um, for many things, we don't know what that interval is. What's the decay rate for these, for the knowledge and skills associated with things that we learn? But we do know for healthcare interventions, we've sort of measured them. And people that take CPR courses may be very comfortable providing chest compressions uh, at the right rate and at the right depth after taking a class, but several days to several weeks later, they may not be as sure. They may not remember as well. And so we don't know what is the right interval to do that top-up training or the deliberate practice to maintain ongoing readiness, to maintain your ability to do that. Most high-reliability organizations and high-reliability teams practice regularly to maintain that edge, to maintain that performance. Think about professional athletes or think about... Uh, um, Pilots. I have I to, as an IFR pilot, uh, I'm certified for life as an IFR pilot, and I've been trained to fly jets, but until I go and show that I can uh, perform a number of uh, uh, precision approaches at a local airport, I'm not legal. I'm certified, but I'm not legal. That's right. So think about uh, these high reliability groups that try to work as a team to provide a product. So in... Uh, in sports, we have teams that practice regularly. In aviation, we have crews that practice not only normal operations, but perhaps emergency operations with some regularity to be ready. Uh, we can see teams that may be working in a restaurant that work together to provide meals in a very rapid succession. Um, it's the ongoing practice and improvement of our practice that leads to that high reliability state. That's what we hope to do by providing deliberate practice opportunities for people to do things that they may not do very often, but are life-saving when needed, like CPR, like the rescue position, like the use of Narcan for a presumed opiate overdose, People may recognize what they think they should do, but unless they go through and operationalize it in some way on a regular basis, they may hesitate. They may feel like they're not really ready or don't remember how to do it. And that life-saving intervention is so needed in that gap between injury and arrival of our professional first responders. We're so appreciative of uh of uh, having uh, Dr. Boats uh, provide a real technical background to some of these conditions that are uh, really key. Uh, we're now going to hear from uh, Randy Steiner, 
Uh, Randy is the emergency response uh, expert and director for the University of California, Irvine. Uh, he is a scoutmaster, and we are working with him to help deploy the MedTech program across the University of of California Irvine campus uh, that serves 55,000 students, uh, educators, uh, and staff. So we'll now hear from, uh, from him and uh, look forward to uh, uh, hearing from uh, Chief Adcox after uh, Randy Steiner speaks. So Randy, as we look at the preventable deaths and harm, and we look at the data four or five years ago and the recent data, what jumps out at you? Well, it's it's amazing, you know, just the the the, the not just to look at the graph as as you know a picture of of what's occurring and, and what kinds of things are 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 killing people across all these age groups, but also the 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 just the toll. I mean, the the amount is just really staggering of all these preventable you know incidences that are causing death. But we're really jumped out at me about that graph was the uh the opioid piece of it you know the poisoning which is really we're talking about the opioids um you know overdoses and and how you know not only the 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 initial you know the 2016 graph of that age group of you know such a, a broad spectrum of of people are clearly you know really in the prime of their lives i mean that age group that this this is really impacting that's when people are the most fruitful and it's just really incredible that the, the, the people in that stage of their lives are being killed, you know, in massive numbers um, by by this this thing, this opioid thing. But you know, when you start expanding that into the the next, you know, the next graph in the the twenty twenty graph, and seeing how that's creeping down into those younger people, I mean, you you always hear about you know opioids and 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 you know, the, the overdose incidences of, of young people, but that it's it's becoming so much more prevalent. Um, you know, and just on that point, you know, it really makes me think that, you know, you you we hear about the opioid epidemic as a as a whole, but the the stories you hear about specific incidences aren't based on those older people. They're based on those younger people, which is is very prevalent. I mean, I think that's really important. But you know, with anything as those those instances increase and become more and more common, the less and less we're going to hear about it. And it's that's that's just really tragic. We we have to address this issue and you know somehow at at, at, a, at a nationwide level, or really at a global level, and see if we're we we're making the case. We are exploring the case, but we're making the case that our top institutions like yours and others that are in our community of practice really have a responsibility to not only help those students and teachers and educators and doctors and nurses and caregivers at the medical centers, but, but because you're experts at education and you're experts in the information, um, don't we as our top institutions have a responsibility to to help fill in the public safety net and the public health net absolutely i mean that's what we do at the, at at universities especially at the at the 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 you know uci type of level we're research institutions that's where we find the answers you know it's we can look at things like 
you know, biological issues or engineering or, or things like that, you know, viral research, things like that. But we could also, we have the, the infrastructure, uh, you know, to study these other issues like the opioid epidemic and like preventable deaths as well. Um, you know, so yeah, they, I, I agree 100% that institutes of higher education not only, you know, can be a, a place where these answers are found and, and, you know, really good research happens, but they should be. I think there, we have an obligation. We always say that's, that's what we're doing. We're not, you know, creating this research or doing this research to, to benefit a small number of people. We're doing it to benefit the world. And what is more beneficial than to solve these problems like the opioid epidemic? So when, when we look at the age group you serve at the, at, the, at the University of California, Irvine, and we look at the age group, we see that motor vehicle accidents, and we know many of them are related to alcohol, and opioid overdoses are an enormous proportion. However, if we go down age and we look at the kids of many of those teachers and students and educators and doctors and nurses that serve at your medical center, um, there's a huge opportunity to teach water safety. And a lot of the things that we're doing with MedTech, is it, is it fair to say that we could reach them through those we serve and those uh, who serve? Absolutely. And you, it, it's the, those graphs show make a really great point is, of showing that the, the increase in drowning deaths to younger people, for example, you know, and what's causing that. And that's the fact that, you know, I think that the, the, you know, when, when I was a child and all of my friends, we were thrown in the pool. We were taught to swim. That was such a big part of our growing up. And I think that part of the, the culture of, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's the online culture or how kids are, are just dealing with things socially that they're not seeing the importance of going and learning to swim, you know, things like that. And, you know, every kid or every person sooner or later finds himself in water that's over their head. And if they don't know how to swim, they're going to be in big trouble. So yeah, I, you know, using, you know, the, 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 the community from the university to really start with their own families and, and get this message apart, across to how important it is not just the swimming, obviously, but, you know, defensive driving, uh, you know, teaching our kids to be, you know, responsible when they're out there on the road is, is really important. We can start here and, you know, from here we can, we can move it to the, you know, the rest of the world. Well, here on the West Coast, we have such great leaders and researchers and research scientists like Dr. Vaca, who is really studying drinking, binge drinking, the impact of drinking on uh, motor vehicle accidents and transportation. And so you've got a great expert right there at UCI who's speaking today. Um, uh, this issue of alcohol poisoning and recognizing it and knowing what to do, we're covering today. Anything you want to add to the fact that we need to be able to recognize it and teach our young people at college what, uh, what to do? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a that's a really big thing, and it's it's a tough nut to crack because you know a lot of times when these these young people are in these situations where they're becoming susceptible to alcohol poisoning, you know they're surrounded by other people who are also indulging, and it may be you know as that you know the, the, their ability to be aware is decreased by the intake of alcohol, it's going to become tougher for people to you know kind of realize that hey this this guy is in trouble. Um, you know what's a what a you know what's a level of being drunk if everybody's drunk then everybody's drunk it's really hard to say oh well this person's more drunk or this person's 
getting towards you know being falling falling victim to alcohol poisoning but i think that there's you know ways that we could definitely increase education and you know i understanding the symptoms you know i mean we take a, a you take a red cross training on first aid and they'll teach you how to identify a stroke uh you know through the, the fast technique but what techniques are there easy to digest techniques are there to recognize the the symptoms of alcohol poisoning so you know we can definitely improve that process and and give young people you know simple tools that they can use that when they see somebody who's you know, in trouble because of alcohol ingestion that they can take a action to help to save that person's life. So uh, as, as, we, as we look at the recognition of uh, alcohol poisoning and education, uh, what's your message to parents and families and those uh, who um, are sending their kids off to, to college about preventable death and harm? Uh, don't deny it don't say that this won't happen or that, you know, I'm not going to talk to my child about drinking or doing drugs because maybe somehow I'll be encouraging them. Um, we have to acknowledge that these things exist, uh, that your children are going to be exposed to them when they go into college. And college is a great time to learn and it's a great time to, to figure out what you want to do with your life, but it's also a huge opportunity to you know, party and to you know be in situations where alcohol and drugs may be present. Um, don't discount that. Don't say that that can't happen. Talk to your kids. Make sure that they understand how to be safe. Make sure that they have a way out. That you know, if if they, you need to come and 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 give them a ride or something, if you're in the same area, or finding those ways, giving them money for an Uber or something like that. That's. You know, you can talk about the fact that they were drunk or the fact that they were, you know, uh, under the influence of something later. The, the 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 goal has got to be getting them home safely and making sure that they have those resources and that they can call you um, to 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 deal with that. These are these you know these are oftentimes not kids. These are adults. There are kids. There'll always be our kids, no matter what their age is. But we have to have our primary. Uh, responsibility is their, their protection and you know not to say that oh you got drunk so you're you know you're, you're going to be punished kind of thing but finding out you know how do we keep them safe and giving them the resources to stay safe at, at all times right uh so you know one of the things that we have talked about is the fact that um um active shooter events have captured a lot of attention but they're a fraction of the number of deaths that we have. And um, it's critical to understand how to rescue somebody if they have a life-threatening event much broader than active shooter events. Um, your comments there. Uh, I, I think we're going to get everybody as, as, as trained as we can uh, to deal with uh, severe bleeding. But these other areas are pretty critical, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And, you know, we are. There is a big emphasis on, you know, uh, the active shooter response events and how to how to deal with that, and that's you know largely based on that. Even though this is a, a low frequency event, it's an extremely high impact event. And when these events happen, there's always a shortage of you know life saving skills and equipment um, to deal with those people. So while you know the stop the bleed kit distribution and everything like that is is very um, very important, you know for that 
incident, yeah, you're right. There needs to be, you know, a continued focus on on the other impacts, all those things that are are causing those premature deaths, particularly in young people, the the the, the alcohol poisoning or drug overdoses and and traffic accidents. You know, being able to to give or provide those you know um, skill improvement opportunities, I think, is really important, and and making sure that we're always watching out for you know the younger generation, and that it's you know just because somebody does becomes an adult legally does not mean that they have the capacity to be you know a responsible adult. Um, we have to continue to 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 let give people that time to mature, and college is a great opportunity to do that. Fantastic. Um, what are your thoughts regarding uh, where where we go from here in terms of emergency response? What are the biggest priorities to you in terms of preventable injury, harm, death uh, as you go forward? Really, it's just education. You know, it's 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 getting out of the the compartmentalized responsibilities of emergency response. Uh, you know, a perfect example is is at UCI's um, you know our evacuation processes of a building. We were really putting the education piece of that evacuation in a very small number of hands, and we weren't educating everybody else on what to do. Um, so you know, there was always a lot of confusion when a building would get evacuated. What do people do, and how do they do it? And and you know that there was always that level of confusion. We've moved away from that. You know, while we still have our floor wardens and our our zone captains and people who will assist in the evacuation, you know, we just produced a video that has become mandatory training for everybody on campus. That is all about emergency preparedness, including how to evacuate. Um, so we're addressing that. We're putting the the onus of of you know the safety in the individual. Uh, but you can't just do that. You can't just say, hey, you're responsible for your own safety. You have to give people the resources to be responsible for it. You know, we look at, you know, I know you, you had mentioned the, the 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 collapse of the public health system, or that safety net that that everybody is kind of dependent on. Um, you know, it's a sort of this idea that somehow this bigger entity will come and save me. So I don't have to worry about it. That there's other people out there that are are worried about it. Um, we have to bring that down to the family unit. You know, the families have got to be responsible for their safety. Everybody has to be, say, what do am I doing to be safe? And do I have the resources and the knowledge to make sure that I'm safe and that my family's safe? Um, you know, that's, yeah, I don't think that the world has moved in that direction. I think it's always been that that, that place. But it's just now we're kind of realizing that, you know, we have to protect ourselves at the ground level, first of all, and we need to, you know, make sure that we have the resources to do that, and you know, the, not to depend on these higher entities to come and save us if there's a problem. We have to save ourselves first. Gotcha. So, as we talk about the public safety net, uh, it's pretty tattered right now, isn't it? I mean, you work very closely with law enforcement, and um, as does uh, uh, Chief Adcox. And uh, we're in a state where we families really do need to step up, don't we? Because the the public safety net is is pretty tattered in war. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's gotten it's taken a, a beating, um, but you know, kind of alluding to what I just just mentioned is that you know 
what was the extent of it ever, you know, was that our, our belief in that this public safety net was going to be, you know, our protection and therefore we don't have to worry about it. You know, that, I don't know that that's necessarily changed. I think that our perception has been, you know, that, okay, there's always that safety factor. Now we're kind of, you know, because of COVID and because of, you know, everything else that happens, we're kind of becoming aware of, wait a minute, that's, that's not true. You know, I, I used to work in, in disaster recovery. And, you know, people would lose their homes and they wouldn't have insurance and they would say things like, oh, well, that's OK. FEMA is going to come and, you know, make me whole again. They're all, all they're, they're going to help me recover. They didn't realize that the most money they're ever going to get out of FEMA is something like forty five thousand um, dollars. But, you know, that was their idea is that, oh, well, you know, I don't have to get insurance because, you know, the, the government will come in and save me again. And that just never happens. Uh, you know, it's so people need to make you know, realize that and realize that, you know, you first and foremost are responsible for your safety and for the security of your family. It's not somebody else's responsibility. The police are, are wonderful. They do a great job, but they're not superhuman. They're humans just like us. They can't be every place at the same time. Obviously, if a police officer witnesses a crime being committed, they're going to step in to stop it. But just be, you know, you're they're not going to be able to prevent your house from being broken into because they're not there. You know, you have to be responsible for that. Uh, you know, personal responsibility, I think, is has been lacking. And we really need to look at ourselves individually and say, am I personally responsible for my safety? And if I am, am I prepared to to account for that safety? So as we talk about this uh, wonderful initiative by Nanette Hausman of College 911, and we've talked about um, having a, 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 a medical power of attorney and being able to uh, know where the level one trauma centers are uh, at university, near the university if an event were to occur, and being able to have your cell phone uh, contact your in case of emergency uh, folks. And, and we've added to that in our discussions to have the medical records on the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, would you agree that that's, that that's a pretty good strategy to help with the college students that you inherit every year? You're getting brand new high school students that are showing up at UCI and you're responsible for responding to them. Yeah, no, I think it's critical. And, you know, I think it's been pretty lacking. And I, I don't know that that's, you know, really anybody's fault. It's just sort of a realization, you know, really when we're preparing our, our children for college or they're preparing for it, you know, they're filling out documentation about classes and about schedules and about getting around the campus and, and you know, all those those fun things that have to do with campus. And we really don't focus on, you know, yes, college is going to be a positive influence that's going to impact your entire life. And it's a wonderful thing. And you're going to have a great time while you do this. However, it's the real world and the real world is a dangerous place. And we need to make sure that these kids have those tools to say, you know, you're, you, yeah, you, first of all, you need to have this medical power of attorney and why, <laughs> and you need to be able, people need to be able to, you know, make, make decisions for you. And you should know where your nearest hospital is, where your nearest trauma center is, but you also need to know, like we talked about before, what are the symptoms of alcohol poisoning? Not only in others, but in yourself. You know, when do you know that you, you know, as a, as a kid who's never been exposed to alcohol and all of a sudden they're at a party with a keg and they're drinking and, you know, 
how do they realize in themselves that they need to slow down and how do they need to, to pass that on to other people and watch out for each other? You know, if every student coming into college had that awareness, I think it'd be a completely different thing. Fantastic. And, you know, uh, you and I have talked about uh, uh, Sean Thompson, the, the world champion surfer who uh, makes the point to young people when they are undertaking or contemplating undertaking a risky activity that it might be drinking, it might be drugs, it might be driving while drunk, it might be just anything that's, that's risky. Uh, the two words, think twice, uh, just to have that pause. And he relates that after losing his son to the, the choking game, yeah. uh, which was a, a, occurring. Um, what do you see in terms of our young people? Do you see the same thing where they just don't perceive risks and we have to kind of remind them that, life is a risky endeavor? I think that's part of the curse of youth. I mean, it's just, it, you know, it takes time and maturity to realize that, that you know, we're not going to live forever um, and that we're, you know, we can put ourselves in hazardous situations. Um, but I think that, that, you know, that once again, that education piece becomes so important to that, you know, to say, you know, it, it's, we don't want to be, you know, fatalistic about things, right? We don't want our, we don't want to bum our kids out for that. They're going out to college and they're going into a dangerous environment, but we do want to, you know, make sure they understand the realities of the world they're going into. A lot of these kids going into college, especially a, a four-year university like UCI, they've never been on their own in their lives. And that's a big thing. That's a hard thing to do. And it's a scary thing. And, you know, they, don't need to work out or find out that these are risky behaviors, you know, in order to know that they are, if we educate them or if we have those resources, you know, it's part of the orientations, you know, in universities, it's all about the school. It's all about, you know, how to get to classes and it's all this practical stuff, but there's really not a big push on, you know, and, you know, here's your, here's something you should know about alcohol poisoning. Here's something you should know about fentanyl use or how to use Narcan or something like that. Um, but also, you know, ensuring that they we provide those safety nets for our children, not relying on the university to do it. And the university does through the Clery Act and through other things to the extent that they can. Um, but we have to be able to provide those safety nets to our children. And we have to be able to give our kids the option to say, hey, dad, I'm drunk. I'm sorry, but can you give me some money so I can call an Uber, you know, and, and have that support and teach our kids that, you know, if you don't have to drive drunk you don't have to there's options that that you can you know and your your priority is to get home safely we'll work out getting the car and you know everything else but that's i I'll, I'll deal with the stress of that way before i deal with the stress of having to you know identify your body in the extreme circumstances or bail you out of jail or something like that so you know having those those resources and making sure that we provide those backstops for our kids because they're learning yeah they're adults and you say oh you're an adult you're on your own that's a very dangerous thing to do for especially for a kid who's never been out on their own before that learning curve can be fatal and we know that we talk about the family lifeguard idea where somebody that is a young person in a family and you and i are scout leaders but uh but this could apply to kids in college and we've had a great experience with the emt club at uci uh, as educators 
and that the family lifeguard could be that college student that learns about falls in the elderly. We, you saw how big the numbers are, falls being the cause of death and those over 65. And then the, the drowning deaths in the kids that are between one and four years of age and motor vehicle accidents. And we think about what uh, our college students could learn to take home to their, their own homes because they're there to learn. Reasonable to, to, to think about putting programs together to get our college students to take a little bit responsibility for the safety at, at the home and of their extended family. Oh, absolutely. And I think we should, you know, really re-examine the value of these these young people, you know, both in college and getting out of college, you know, and the the impact that they can have on society. I think, you know, we live in a in a country which really values the 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 wisdom, you know, the 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 older people who've gained that wisdom and through our experiences, you know, how many times have you heard somebody say, Oh, you don't know anything, you're just a kid. You know, and I think we really should shift that focus and really focus on, you know, the wisdom of these 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 younger people and the things that they can teach us and, you know, work with them to get those skills to, you know, they're learning things in a different way than we learn things. And, and our parents learn things that, you know, instead of saying that's a bad thing or, you know, that's not the way we've done it before, we should look at that and say, you know, acknowledge it realize how it is they're learning things and how they see the world and then give them the tools to to provide you know that care that level of care to the to the community and to the world you know through that lens so i think we should always you know empower our younger people and part of how you do that you know when i learned became a cpr instructor it 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 totally increased my confidence just as a human being in general knowing that i had the skills to go out and save a life in and of itself was a was an amazing thing for me i've I, you know I, I can't say i've never died i helped a choking victim once i've never done cpr and somebody i've taught literally thousands of people how to do cpr um but that's not the point the point is that i know how to do it i became a stop the bleed instructor i've never put a tourniquet on a live bleeding human being but knowing that i know how to do that is, is a confidence booster. And I think if we give these kids early on those skills, you know, it really helps out a lot of different things. It's kind of like scouts, you know, the, why do we do the things? Why do we teach these kids knots that they'll never have to use in their real life? It's because, well, first of all, they might, you never, I've learning how to tie a, a, a trucker's hitch was one of the most <laughs> important things I think I've ever done, but it builds that confidence that they have the, the that they know they have the ability to, to learn these things it builds confidence and that's you know that can that's that can be part of our of the 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 curriculum of life that we can give all these young people fantastic so randy um as we talk about going forward uh we believe that our institutions of higher learning and our top medical centers can actually break new ground in public health and public safety. Uh, you and I have talked about this extensively. Um, isn't it that time, if if it's not them, who, and if it's not now, when? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we have, you know, it's, there, there's, there's, a process, right, of, of everything. And we're, we're, we've, we're coming into the point of just having discussions like this of, you know, how these institutions can help. I think that, you know, there's, there's 
too rigid a definitions on what various institutions do, right? That this institution does this and nothing else. This, this institution does this. We don't want to get in each other's lanes, you know, where, you know, we're finding that for, for practical purposes, it really makes sense to overlap. It makes sense to, to look at, you know, the, the whole big picture. And once we realize that there is a contribution that can be made or an improvement to, I mean, what's, what's an institute of higher education? It's there to improve knowledge. It's there to improve people's understanding of the world that they live in. But the world they live in isn't just organic chemistry or it isn't just, you know, medicine. It's, there are car crashes. There are opioid overdoses. There are drownings. You know, that's also part of the world we live in. And we can't just say, you know, we're not going to acknowledge that because that doesn't impact us directly. Well, it, someday it might. And, you know, have, once again, giving people that understanding, not to scare people, but to give them a better understanding of the environment, you know, the ecosystem that they, they, they live in, to put it in a more scientific way. I think it's really important to give students all the tools they need to, to you know, become successful. And that's not just academic. That's also practical skills that, that we can apply to, to the world. If, you know, most people who learn CPR will never use it, but that one person who does makes all the rest of those people learning it worth it. Well, Randy, and uh, your point is so well made. This morning before my son left in his car on his way to school, a 16 year old, I put the rescue kit in the car with the seatbelt cutter to be able to help rescue somebody or himself out of the car. Um, as well as a stop the bleed kit. And as you know, a couple months ago, I had to take a, I had to help a lady out of a burning car and try to take her underneath the airbag, which I didn't really know how to deflate a side airbag that didn't deflate. So there's lots of stuff to learn. Mm -hmm. and we want to thank you for your tremendous support and your tremendous leadership at UCI. No, thank you, Chuck. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We'll want to come back to uh, Chief Adcox uh, and have him uh, share his thoughts uh, after we cover a couple of these uh, key issues as we come to our close for our 90-minute program for continuing education. We want to bring up the, this issue of the public safety net and health, uh, health public health net is really failing, and we can act through what we call the four Ps which is prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. And as we do that, and as we focus on that, that's a continuous process. So for those of you that are watching on uh, or listening on the podcast, we see them as a feedback loop. And we'll ask uh, Chief Adcox, who we frequently ask to address this, but each of these Ps is something where we're constantly learning uh, and that we need to focus on uh, preventing things from happening or harm from happening, being prepared if they do, protection when they do, if we can, if they get through our safety net, and then performance improvement at what we learn. We also know, and, and Chief Adcox is a great role model as a leader, that high performance exists at the intersection of leadership, practices, and technologies. And when we look at that performance envelope, it's really the balance of those. We can look at those as we look at what, how many resources we have. And in other programs, we discuss the concept of idealized design, which is if you had unlimited talent, time, and treasure, that would be in a perfect world. 
but what within the scope of resources you have are the best achievable levels of performance. I think it's really important for us to recognize the preventable harm and death that's occurring is growing, the danger zone is growing, and that we have to anticipate that and be able to come up with performance solutions that can close the gap. When we talk about gaps, we talk about uh, leadership practices and technologies, and we map them against awareness, being aware of the performance gaps. So the leaders uh, have to be aware of them, the practices have to address the gaps, and the technologies have to be able to close the gaps, but we need to be aware. Then we need to have personal accountability of those who are able to close the gaps and those that can lead, and uh, they must be accountable to performance uh, performance measures, which might be outcomes, process, structure, measures, and experience measures. Those of you that have been with us for many years, you know that that's the model that we use for measures. And then ability. Uh, the leaders need to invest in the ability of the organization, and the key actors must be able to act. And the staff and leaders must be able to assure that existing and new technologies are safe and, and being enabled. And then they're the line of sight actions that need to be taken that can really have that impact. So when we look at leadership practices and technologies, that's our focus area. And the activities, the behaviors that we have to administrate are creating awareness, creating accountability, direct accountability for actors who are going to act, giving them the ability to act, and then what are the line of sight actions that they might want to take? So when we look at the why you, of our medical centers and educators. We're studying this through our community of practice. We're studying why not have our leading medical centers and our leading institutions of higher learning kind of tackle this and kind of show us the way. Uh, Bill, uh, you are one of uh, our terrific leaders in threat safety science, and you lead a number of, uh, uh, of, organ, uh, of uh, people that serve in protecting the organizations. You're pioneering a lot of work in the four Ps what encouraging words might you have for other medical centers that would step up and say, hey, listen, maybe we should extend just taking care of the people that serve and those we serve to their families because our safety net has really kind of collapsed, both public health and the, and the safety net that we rely on with uh, law enforcement and EMS and, and, and caregivers. What advice do you have to other leaders in your position? Well, thank you, Dr. Dem. I, I do believe when I look at it like a, the structure of a house, I think the family unit is the foundation. I think the the structure itself, the walls and so forth is 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 the institutions that we're talking about. it's it's making sure it's the community that we live in. And then I think that the roof is that safety net that you talked about. and 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 with the first responders, whether it's police, fire, EMS, uh, uh, the emergency rooms on college campuses that involve environmental health and safety. Uh, which is sort of the, the arm of the fire and so forth. But you, you really have to step out and say, you know, you're part of the community as organizations, as education, academic medical centers, uh, colleges and universities of higher education. And you have a responsibility to be part of the community, not just educate a select group or whoever is able to come to your university. And we need to be in the communities. We need to be participating in the communities and we need to be helping them. And I really think that that, you know, having that expertise and, and truly having that bandwidth, uh, you can do that. If you can pull the families in and, and, and build a stronger foundation, um, I think then we all win. Everybody, everybody's going to, going to do well. Um, and these things aren't, aren't 
you know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, you mentioned opiate overdoses and fentanyl overdoses and so forth. Um, I recall as a, as a young man in our own neighborhood that there was some of the people that lived in our neighborhood that were out partying and one of them had an overdose of heroin and, and they were afraid and they just took, took them and dumped them in the desert and, and the, the individual uh, passed away within, you know, within an hour. It, it's just horrible because everybody's a fearful. Well, you don't have that when you have a community. You know, we know people are weak. We know there's people that have, have disbelief. We know there's people that are out there that that that, that have addictions and um, there's individuals with mental health, which is truly probably, you know, a lot more prevalent than people want to 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 believe. We have to come together as a community. We have to respect that. We have to help each other and we have to put in the, the right resources. You know, uh, Randy Snyder said, you know, he talked about teaching our children and teaching you know, each other, you know, about, you know, the drugs and, and the other things that, that our children get into. I agree with that. I think you, you find the resources if you're not comfortable making, having that conversation, because a lot of times you, you, your, your, your children may not listen to you, but listen to someone else. So make sure you're telling them, make sure others are telling them. But bottom line is, is that you have to have a rule. And you need to tell your children, listen, when you get out there, if there's anything making you uncomfortable, Make me the first call. I will help you in any way I can. There will be no questions asked. And that way they feel safe. Because because they know they messed up because they called you. There's no reason to, to keep hampering on it. But you want to get them safe and back to your home, just like Randy says. And so you can, you know, you don't need to stand on any, any levels of principles and whatever you're, you're thinking. Call me. I'll come and get you. I will get you help. No questions asked. And I believe that that's important. Because hopefully you've done all the building of, you know, teaching your children what's best. But often you don't know. Children go away to groups and to colleges and they want to belong. They'll often get themselves over their heads. They'll get over their skis, as they say. That's going to be a natural thing. And most of the time, you know, they're able to survive it. But if they're over their skis and they want to call, they should call you first. And so, yes, I, think, I do think that, the, the, that, that we all here together as one, you have to look at it as a structure. And we all need to step up and do our part. Well, Bill, thank you so much for all that you do uh, 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 to help us. And you're responsible not only for MD Anderson, but also the University of Texas Health Science Center. You've got students, teachers, educators. Um, and on one hand, there's a lot of vulnerability. On the other hand, you've got some great talent there to help focus on risk management and focus on these things. So we wanna thank you for uh, the great work you're doing. Uh, for those that are uh, getting their continuing education credits, we'll finish on time. And what we'll do is uh, we'll want to, uh, we'll be addressing um, uh, two or three things that are uh, important uh, uh, and uh, also address uh, the fact that we have our opioid uh, uh, overdose uh, films that we have been producing and that we will produce. First off, uh, you heard from Nanette Houseman at the beginning of uh, the program and about her son, Corey, who uh, just in those first few weeks of his college, uh, uh, college uh, trajectory uh, died of a head injury. Uh, and as a result, um, we've had the opportunity to learn a lot from, um, from her and from her team, the importance of having a medical power of attorney 
uh, that would uh, allow those that are over 18 years of age uh, to be able to have their parents contacted. If you and we've been sharing this as broadly as we can. Um, most parents that I've talked, almost every parent that I've talked to, did not realize uh, that once their child is 18 or once their young person is 18, that they uh, that they may not be contacted. Secondly, using the smartphone for notification of the in case of emergency, folks in all the smartphones now there's a mechanism that would allow when you dial 911 to have your in case of emergency people contacted, knowing the emergency providers uh, in the area, where are the level one trauma centers, where would you take somebody who did have alcohol poisoning, not to an urgent care center, but perhaps what's the closest place that someone could administer rescue care. And then medical record access for the students and the family members that that have important medical records that are that that are key. So we've had the opportunity of collaborating with uh, with Nanette, and we are supporting her effort in uh, by sharing information regarding the bills that she has moved forward. Uh, we recommend that you go to college911.net and you'll see their checklist for students and checklists for guardians and parents. Uh, the new bill that uh, they are, that she's uh, put forward that will be a federal bill will require uh, reporting of uh, injuries and death uh, that occur at our colleges. And that's the first step to cure transparency that can get us to really focus on closing the gap with these. And we highly recommend that. For those that are on the extended session, uh, you'll hear uh, from Charlie Denham, uh, uh, who is a co-founder of MedTech, the, who is uh, also chairs the, Med, the MedTech student student program um, and the uh, uh, focused on ocean rescue our ocean uh, program and he'll be interviewing uh, uh, Nicole Hughes regarding drowning and what's critically important there and also sharing the extended version of our uh, drowning uh, videotape uh, addressing this uh, challenging area that's critical. We also want to uh, close by reminding you that we've produced uh, multiple videotapes uh, addressing the exploding opioid crisis, and we put a full program on uh, in earlier months, and we recommend that you go back to, to see those. We've done a deep dive on the waves that have been uh, uh, created uh, through uh, over-prescribing, uh, the transition from, uh, from uh, uh, the um, oxycodone and the, the, the other uh, prescription meds to heroin, and then this recent just explosion of fentanyl, uh, which we've addressed in the programs and we really uh, hope that you have the opportunity of taking advantage of this program uh, that in the programs that we've created there. Um, as we move forward, uh, we've recognized uh, that the uh, One Pill Can Kill program and that the DEA has identified that four out of every 10 counterfeit pills that are seized have a lethal fentanyl dose. So basically um, these pushers are poisoning are consumers of the of what they think are legitimate medications, and it's critical that we uh, we really support that. And then finally, uh, the news over the last sixty days has been that uh, that the pushers have been colorizing fentanyl to appeal to younger and younger uh, audiences, uh, uh, and, and they've been selling this over Snapchat. And we've addressed this in the films that we've uh, covered as well. And the critical nature of the fact that a very small volume of fentanyl is lethal uh, and absolutely critical. And that's why uh, we are seeing so many overdoses of our children, 293 deaths a day um, uh, in America. And we saw that big shift. So we'll be producing a film 
to support the DEA program called One Pill Can Kill, and our film will be One Pill Did Kill, and it will tell the story of, uh, of young people at a graduation party that uh, that took a counterfeit medication and uh, friends passed away. Our young adult team are uh, helping produce this and working on all aspects of uh, pre-production, production, and post-production of the program. So as we conclude now, right on time, why now? Tell us how long you want to wait and we'll tell you how many lives will be lost or how many are you willing to let pass away and we'll tell you how long to wait. We are either going to be counting saves or graves and there's an enormous opportunity. We challenge our medical centers that are great medical centers uh, and institutions of higher learning to work with us on this. We'd like to thank our speakers and our reactors who were terrific today. Uh, and we will ask uh, Jenny Dingman uh, to close us. And uh, uh, Jennifer, uh, as I have said, is, uh, is uh, uh, a terrific uh, um, person that we have worked with for many years uh, and has been uh, just a joy uh, to work with uh, in the area of patient safety and quality and the winner of uh, uh, the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for her great work. So we'll uh, ask uh, Jenny to close us. That was really wonderful. There's so much to learn, so much to know, and I'm hoping that everyone here today learned something new that they didn't know already. I myself experienced a failure to rescue in my own life, and if I would have known then what I know now, maybe I could have done something more to participate in the care of my loved one. I just want everyone to know how much I appreciate our speakers today, Dr. Denham and your program, and of course, all of the participants Please share the recordings of this program today and others with everyone that you know. And happy Thanksgiving and God bless everyone. So we're so grateful for uh, Jennifer. Uh, and when we close, we always uh, want to remember, we always uh, share this at the end of our MedTech programs, that we'll fight the good fight. We will finish the race and we'll keep the faith. And the issue is, is that, uh, that everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. Thank you for your attention and we look forward to seeing you next month.